Well, hello there, and welcome to Food Lab Talk. I'm your host, Michael Bakker. About 10 years ago, the food team at Google designed five food shots to be aspirational, challenging, and to provide a space where we can really create change at scale. Amongst other things, our food shots apply Google's 10x moonshot thinking to the question, how might we contribute to enabling the planet to feed and nurse 10 billion people in sustainable, inclusive, efficient, nutritious, and healthy ways? My guest this week, Paul Noonan, might answer this question with, beans is how. Paul is the executive director of the SDG2 Advocacy Hub, which coordinates global campaigns and advocacy to achieve Sustainable Development Goal 2, to end hunger, achieve food security, and improve nutrition, and promote sustainable agriculture by 2030. To help transform food systems, Paul and his team are leading projects such as the Chef's Manifesto, which engages chefs as advocates for a more sustainable and nutritious food system for all, and the Beans is How campaign, which promotes the nutritional, environmental and economic benefits of beans, with the goal to double global bean consumption by 2028. Welcome to the show, Paul. Happy to have you here. Thank you, Michael. It's so great to be with you. To get things started, Paul, would you mind sharing a little bit about your personal and professional background and what led you to the SDG2 Advocacy Hub? I suppose I'd go back a little bit in time. Um, as, a, as a kid, I was blessed to have parents that explored the world. Um, and so I spent some of my early years um, growing up in Asia and Africa. So we were in Bangladesh and India for my primary school years, and then also in Malawi, uh, Zimbabwe and South Africa over some of my high school years. And so I had a childhood that that grew up seeing the world in different ways, seeing different cultures and getting different experiences. And then I went into my work life. I was very interested in culture, interested in development and working to help people in different ways. And so ended up working for a big international NGO that worked around the world in 100 plus countries. And I worked with them in a range of roles, helping engage people and, and connect them to international issues. And that led me to the United Nations, where I was working for the World Food Program. And uh, they came to me and said, would you be interested in helping to bring together a network of individuals, organizations, and agencies across the UN private sector and civil society to work on food, agriculture, and nutrition issues? tied to the sustainable development goals. And so I came in to uh, work on that and set up the SDG2 Advocacy Hub. Um, and it's been a great adventure, I guess, since then in terms of a number of different initiatives. And it's been great just to see how we've been able to help do our small part to put food system change onto the global agenda and, and really help drive that forward. So I'm just curious a little bit more, Paul, so how did you get to be involved, to get involved with chefs and food? When I came on with the World Food Program, there was a lot of uh, conversations. I'd done some work with chefs trying to kind of bridge the gap prior to how do you look at food system issues? How do you look at food security issues? And we'd had some good successes and some failures as well, where we had tried to bring chefs in to talk about people going hungry. and 
when chefs, their their role is to feed people. So when they start talking about hunger, it, it just doesn't gel. You know, their audience is used to hearing about delicious food and then they're saying, oh, there's people without food. And, and it became a kind of a, a bit of a rub. So we, look, we, we had a, quite a few learnings there in the early days, um, and this was prior to joining the UN. And then at the UN, I got asked to work with uh, chefs like um, Gaston Ocurio in Peru and other chefs, and we started to kind of understand the ecosystem a bit. And then I was actually at a meeting that you were at, and it was the first time we actually met. We were at Eat Forum in Stockholm, and there was a meeting, and sitting around the table was an amazing group of people from all different walks of life chefs and and people working with chefs and they were talking about how do we connect and catalyze chefs and these chef networks that exist around kind of this agenda and it was through that that the kind of work that we started to develop around a chef's manifesto around the SDGs really established and so it was in that space and then from there we've kind of grown that work into a network of chefs in 90 plus countries around the world in all different walks of life working on sustainable development. I remember the meeting. So when you look back to everything that you've done so far, Paul, have there been any really pivotal moments in your career? Things that really stood out and say, this happened and as a result of that, I changed my approach or became clear of what I wanted to do. So I've always believed in kind of the ideas of equity and how do we kind of, you know, we're all born in different parts of the world. It's one thing we often don't have any choice in. We can sometimes have a bit of choice in when we're born <laughs> in terms of some some babies come early and those kinds of things. But the concept of being born is something that unifies us all. And it's something that we don't often have a say in. And yet, depending on where we're born will depend on uh, what access we have, what opportunities we have, what start in life we have. And so I've always been big on on looking at that. But when it comes to food, we talk about in food security is is kind of like feeding people. And we break it down often to what people need. And we forget sometimes that food is such a personal thing. Food is tied to our upbringing, our culture, our religion, our like there's so many things that will tell us like what you say is good food and what I say is good food will be similar, but it will also be different and unique. And so around the world, there's like 8 million people that all are unique experts in what they like to eat and what they believe is good for them. And so one of the insights I had was never try to tell people what they should and shouldn't eat guide them to, you know, to information, to ways to make decisions, to ways to kind of improve what they benefit from what they eat. But don't try and say, that's bad, this is good, because what that does is it just polarizes people because of their, their history. And I think then tied to that is this idea that we should lean into ideas like joy, celebration, rather than guilt when we're actually trying to get people to join us in this. A friend of mine who runs a, a company in the UK called uh, Toast, which is a, a beer company made from leftover bread, but he always says that if you want to change the world, you've got to throw a better party than everyone else. And, you know, that's how you gather people. And so I love that kind of visual of kind of how do we make the change we believe, the future we see more joyous, more of a celebration, and more going forward. And when I learned that, Michael, that really changed the way that I approach some of the work that I do in terms of the partnerships, 
the dialogue, the conversation. It went from kind of motivating people from that guilt model to a motivating people from more of a joy, a celebration, a vision, how we bring them on the journey. Talking about motivation, Paul, actually, what motivates you to get up every morning? Because you're working in a space where, one, you're never done, two, you influence others, but it's hard to say as a result of what you do today, you're going to impact this. So what motivates you on a daily basis? I suppose I'm gifted with a, a kind of personality that's very optimistic and internally looks for the best in people that believes that when we get down, the only way to kind of move forward is to drive and work harder, to push further, to to kind of pivot around a problem and, and see what are the solutions. And so I, when I get stuck, I tend to see a challenge. And so that motivates me to kind of really lean in and to move further forward. So for me, it's that kind of internal need to sort of say, how do we do it? To be honest, Michael, when I was younger, I was in the army for a while. One of the things um, in the army that I learned about my own personality was they would take us on these, these marches and it was designed to kind of push you both physically, but also mentally. And I was a bigger guy. So they kind of would give me a lot more to carry and you'd end up carrying people as well because, you know, people would struggle and it's all about the team. But one of the things that I really learned in that space was how to help when you get in a position like that and you want to quit, how to see the next hill. So you break down the problem into, I've just got to get through the next hill. And if I get through the next hill, then it's okay. I can probably break. And then you get to the next hill and then the next hill. And all of a sudden you've achieved your goal. And so to me, that was an amazing learning and insight is how do you break down these big goals or these big journeys into smaller, manageable pieces and almost trick your own mind into a way to get through them. Got it. So before we dive into shifting diets, Paul, I would like to talk to you a little bit more about the bigger picture for a moment. Helping build sustainable food systems is a major focus in your role as the SDG2 Advocacy Hub. Before we go any further, what is the SDG2 Advocacy Hub? So the SDG2 Advocacy Hub is a network built to connect networks across the world. So we look at UN, private sector and civil society. We're working across food, agriculture, nutrition and climate adaptation pillars. And we, we try and create space to connect, catalyze and convene people. So to bring people together so that there's greater collaboration, greater coordination, greater catalyzing of, of different things. We then develop networks and narratives. So helping people that come together around different problems, have common language that is kind of universal and unbranded in that sense. So branded at the SDG level, but not at the organizational level. So helping to drive that forward. A lot of insight around big global moments and how do we work together in a better way to try and drive forward change as well. So in that context, from your perspective, how do you define a truly sustainable food system? So to me, a truly sustainable food system is something that is good for both people and planet. It is accessible and affordable for all. And it also is contributing in a regenerative way to some of the degradation that we've seen 
both in human diets and also in planetary space and nature. So it, it, it kind of gives more than it takes. It is multidimensional. It's not looking at one problem in isolation. And I think for me, it also is able to be kind of diverse and responsive to different cultural spaces and different walks of life and contexts. You know, just like you, I think about sustainable food systems quite a bit. And one of the metaphors I use in my own mind is like, it's like a mixing table with a variety of levers. And I think what you might want to do is just move all levers up and make it better. But I think what happens more often is that you just change the levers and you create a different mix. And I think when you talk about a sustainable food system, there is, I think, this belief out there that it is almost like a continuum. You can go from a four to a five to a six, whereas in reality, it is so much more multidimensional and that both the term food system, a sustainable food system is really difficult to define. It is much more a better combination, but I think what is better, I think is not absolute. How do you feel about that? Yeah. No, I, I, I absolutely agree, Michael. Like, I, I feel like there's different levers and different things that, that we do need to, I suppose, look at based on data, based on research, based on some of that expert advice to unlock other components. So, you know, one thing that I've always advocated a lot for is diversity in our diets. I think the lack of diversity that we have in our diets has been one of the big contributors to environmental and health degradation. You know, the fact that we get 60% of all of our calories from these four crops has been absolutely wonderful through the green revolution and through many of the initiatives that have occurred to provide enough food to feed everyone in the world. The downside or the unintended consequence is that as a result of that, we then have a lack of diversity in our system and we're losing that biodiversity very quickly. So to me, thinking about different elements on that mixing table that you're describing, it's looking at what are the ones that we should put more in to deliver more outcome or more, you know, acceleration. And I think that sometimes we we try and find that single idea, but to me it's a it's a number of things being mixed together, but there are some that research and and experience tell us are are almost lead kind of focus areas that we should be kind of putting more attention on in order to get a quicker outcome or more outcomes on the other side. Yeah. Double clicking a little bit on this, on you know the subject we're talking about today, shifting diets. I, I think there is a clear distinction between what you eat for a meal and ultimately your your diet, which is basically I think a combination of what you eat over a much longer period of time. So when we talk about shifting diets, do you think is it a supply challenge? Is it a demand challenge? Is it something different? So where would you start? Where do you start in your role? Yeah, look, as we think about shifting diets, I, I think you're asking a really good question. Is it supply or is it demand? I think that depends also on location. I think it also depends on space. So I think, you know, for example, in the US, you find food deserts in certain areas, which I would say is a, is a supply problem, but it is also a kind of demand problem. Like it's both, do you know what I mean? There's a, 
a lack of demand for good healthy food, but sometimes because there's a no supply, <laughs> there's you know, so you can have that kind of issue. In other parts of the world, I think demand is leading some of the challenge, but that demand is also being encouraged through very clever marketing, through shelf-stable foods that are able to be able to get, deliver bigger profit. And so you'll see shifts in diet from maybe more traditional ingredients and more kind of ideal ingredients towards less nutritious ingredients that are maybe easier to, to market and to sell. So you can have these supply-demand challenges. I think for me, when we're thinking about this, I think that we do need to work on demand. I do think there's a big gap on demand for really healthy foods, for whole foods, and because they're, the value creation around them is harder to market. So they don't get that same marketing spend. They don't get that same kind of pop that comes from that kind of trends and those kinds of things. And so you do find that there is a kind of shift in the marketing spend towards less nutritious foods. And so then you end up with more demand on that side. On the supply side, I think we're solving many of those supply issues around the world where there is demand. There is still areas in which we we have shortages and we've seen, you know, with the conflict in Ukraine, with COVID, some of the exposure of how fragile our system is. So we've seen certain commodities disappear. Like I was living in the UK during the beginning of COVID and like things like flour disappeared very quickly from the shelves and it very quickly recovered as well. So there is those kind of supply issues. I think at the moment, fresh fruit and vegetables are being impacted by climate change in big ways in certain parts of the world. And the quality of, of those ingredients is being impacted. So we do have supply issues, but I think for me, changing diet is a lot more about working on demand. And if I can build upon that then, Paul. So what is your core belief of what is driving demand or how can you influence demand? So my core belief on what's driving demand and influencing that is, uh, I would say a lot has been convenience. So I always think about cost, convenience, and then taste. And those three things I think are the main drivers for how people approach food purchasing. So I think convenience has been a big thing. As we've seen people get busier, as we've seen people's lives change, we're looking for convenience. At the same time, we're also looking for costs. So the amount that we spend of our, our budget on food, we've had all these other things we want to spend money on as the world continues to shift. And so the percentage we want to spend on food has constantly been going down. And so you see that there's a couple of interesting reports that have come out. The World Food Program brings one out around the cost of a plate of food where they talk about the ingredients and how much of a person's daily budget they have to put in to buy those ingredients. And you see that in New York, it's very cheap and affordable for this one dish, but in a place like South Sudan, it's very expensive. And so you kind of have these differences there. And so I think for me, that is really key. So cost, the convenience, and then taste is also another thing. So what do we like to eat? How do we like to eat? What flavors are we used to? How are they presented to us? How are they packaged in that kind of way? And so for me, it's those three things that are really key levers that we need to be thinking about. What I like about what you're doing, Paul, is the intentionality behind your work. 
So when you talk about shifting diets, I mentioned at the intro that you're working on a the Beans is How campaign. So let's talk about it a little bit more. So curious to hear a little bit more about what is the Beans is How all about? And if you can maybe talk a little bit more about the theory of change affiliated with the campaign, because I think that is really unique. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Um, so Beans is How is an ambitious campaign that's kind of been mobilized. It came out of an idea at the UN Food Systems Summit about how do we really change the food system? So a lot of what we're talking about today, how do we kind of wrestle with these questions? And um, Beans is How is, is, has been focused around how do we think about beans peas and lentils as a way to drive that change. And so the goal is to double the global consumption of beans, peas and lentils and other pulses by 2028. And so the focus of the campaign is how do we amplify and make visible the importance of beans as a simple, affordable solution to some of our global financial and health and environmental uh, challenges. And the idea is to how do we kind of amplify and really make that visible while also uplifting the policy um, change areas that needed, the academic research that we need to do, and how we bring stakeholders around that in a kind of shared vision. And so we're thinking beans because beans are nutritious, they're good for the planet, they're affordable, they're versatile, and they're also delicious. And in each of those areas, when you start to talk to people, they go, oh, I'd never realized that, you know, they're looking for food solutions to help them on their, you know, in various ways. But beans are nutrient dense. They have protein, dietary fiber. It's great for gut health. There's no cholesterol. Um, they're low in fat. They're rich in micronutrients. And they have things like iron, potassium, B vitamins like folate. So lots of things that we need. Um, I think it's great because they're like a, a, a prebiotic. They help your microbiome. So there's something that feeds that. We often talk about probiotics, which are things that come to kind of replace our microbiome or after it's kind of deficient. But this is like helping feed it to be really effective. Um, they're also good for the planet. They, they're really great for soil uh, and water quality. They reduce the need for synthetic fertilizers because they take atmospheric nitrogen and they, they create it into a way that's usable for a plant usable form. They work with the bacteria in the soil to actually be able to actually create nitrogen that they can use. And they use lots of less water often than other crops. So there's a huge amount of benefit there. They're also just parts of lots of different global cuisines. They're, they're every part of the world has a bean dish or a pea dish or a lentil dish that ties back hundreds of years. And so there's this kind of beautiful diversity that you can see as well. So, I mean, that just gives you a, a, a bit of a snapshot of why, but you were asking a little bit about our theory of change. And I, I just want to talk a little bit about that. So the campaign has built a, a coalition that now has over 60 organizations um, and growing each week. We've launched out and we have a science and innovation advisory group, which has 15 scientists from a variety of different backgrounds around the world that are working alongside our bean board and also our coalition to bring together a kind of base. And we're, we're actually just launching this theory of change, which is live on the website today. Um, it's gone out into the world, but you can pick that up and have a look. And what it does is it, it looks at a lot of the 
the big issues, the challenges that this space faces. It sort of breaks down some of the the data and what gaps there are in the data, what the research says, but also lays down some of our guiding principles and how we kind of are going to move forward. So the idea is built around this idea of driving food system change by increasing consumer demand for beans as this simple solution to some of our biggest challenges. And then the activities that we're looking at is to influence and activate a community of bean stakeholders, champions and influencers. So this includes chefs, young people, social media influencers, bean producers, to really help lift up beans as a visible, accessible and desirable. And then at the same time to work with decision makers as to the value of beans in tackling their policy agenda. So thinking about dietary guidelines, thinking about subsidies, thinking about how they incentivize building this in from a a soil improvement. There's so many examples of this. There's dietary guidelines being looked at in three or four countries at the moment. They have a massive impact. The US is doing it, Australia, Germany, um, a number of countries are looking at them at the moment. But then there's also countries like the Netherlands, which are, are looking at beans as a solution to some of the protein shift commitments they've made and also the nitrogen and soil challenges that they're facing. And so lots of different decision makers looking at this for different reasons. And our outcome is like to see this global bean consumption go up by 2028 and build a model that can actually then be replicated into other areas. So we're not saying that if we just double bean consumption, we solve all of our food system problems. What we're saying is here's a really good place to start. And if we can do this, we can then potentially use this model for further behavior change and further food system change that's tied to the SDGs to help accelerate that. We might look at seaweed or ocean foods or millets. There's so many different foods that should be more present in our food system. And we're just saying pulses and beans and legumes are are really something that almost everyone agrees we should be eating more of. Yeah. I'm curious to learn more about why you are coming out so explicitly with the theories of change and the use of the the scientific advisory board is that based on the learning you've had with prior campaigns that that was a missing element so can you talk a little bit more about the why of being so explicit with the theories of change yeah i mean when whenever you go out on a campaign or an idea it's very easy to get people excited you can rally people around an idea or something, but to hold them there, you've got to almost communicate a plan. You've got to give people some belief around how is this possible so that you can then actually align activities. You can actually build community around those activities. And so we, we've learned this through previous experience where you, you can kind of see things reach a peak and then they, they fizzle out. So what we've been very intentional on this uh, conversation to do is to really say, how do we create a framework, create the kind of the train tracks that we are kind of going to work towards and invest in and invite others to invest in and join us around. And so we wanted that to be really clear. There's a lot of debate in the food system where scientists will disagree, counter each other, There's lots of different agendas. And so we wanted to bring together a variety of thought leaders into our science innovation group from behavior change right through to agricultural and seed breeding through to consumption, um, you know, driving to measurement, all different walks of life, medical and health 
to be able to say there's not one element here. This is actually about a multi-stakeholder, multi-dimensional approach. And our theory of change needs to respect that and show that. But then at the same time, we need to package that in a way that kind of gives everyone a bit of a game plan so that we can align the community around that. And so then whether it's a company in Latin America or a lobby group in Australia working on getting people to eat more grains and more nutritious food or a, a big company, they can all kind of see how they can contribute to this approach and this plan. I admire you for the methodical approach because I totally agree with you. It's easy to get people excited. It is so much harder to make ultimately stuff happen. So, Paul, one of the things our audience really values the most about this podcast are practical takeouts. So, if you think about all the things you have learned throughout your career in driving change, what is it that you wished you knew then that you know today about driving change? It's a very good question, Michael. I would say for me, there's a couple of things. One is the power of relationships and working with people. I think relationships are critical for us to actually drive the change we want around the world. I think we often think of that ideas are the thing that, that drive, but ideas are only as good as the people and the networks that carry them. And so I think investing in networks, investing in relationships is really critical. I think within that, the piece that I would say is an insight that I've learned is to diversify that. So sometimes we go deep within a particular sector, but we don't look across. And so I think it's really important to look across both horizontally and vertically within your given field. So how do you connect across different networks and different industries, but also how do you connect within your industry and network? And there's different people that are good at doing both. And there's some people that do one really well as well. And I think it's about building those kind of webs so that you can then succeed in really getting a, a message out there or a, a cause to gather momentum. Thank you for sharing that, Paul. And with that, Paul, thank you so much for joining us on Food Lab Talk. It has been truly wonderful to hear from you about your incredible work and thoughts. And good luck with the Beans' How campaign. Thanks, Michael. It's been a pleasure and, um, as always, inspiring conversation. So thank you so much for having me on. Before we go, let's talk about three key takeaways for change makers from today's episode. What are three things you can consider in your own work? First, inspire change by leading with empathy for people's personal experiences. Paul highlighted how personal connections can turn polarizing when you start to frame food choices as good or bad. As change makers, we need to be aware when the things we are trying to change might be personal and guide change through a positive lens that acknowledges and celebrates individual experiences. As Paul said, if you want to change the world, you need to throw a better party than everyone else. Second, Ideas are driven by the people and the networks that carry them. Paul's advice to invest in relationships, both deep in your own sector, but also across, horizontally and vertically, reminded me of Greg's advice from episode one and from a day in season one. Relationships help make a complex system a little bit more manageable. And last, 
intentionally communicate your theory of change. System change requires a multi-stakeholder, multi-dimensional approach. Respect this complexity and package it in a way that gives each stakeholder a clear playbook for how they can contribute. It is very easy to get people excited about an idea. It is much more challenging to build lasting momentum toward the change you wish to see. For more information about the SDG2 Advocacy Hub, including the Beans How program and others discussed today, be sure to check out the show notes. Thank you for joining us for this episode. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to the podcast at foodlabtalk.com or wherever you listen to your podcast. As we close, I invite you to pursue your own bold vision and take whatever action you can take toward a better food system. See you next time. Thank you.